0: So here we are, we're at the end of a series called Cosmic Lens, where we're looking at the armor of God. And along the way, we've talked about sort of a, a, a really simplistic rundown on the book of Ephesians, meaning that it's bookended by this heavenly perspective, and the battleground that we find ourselves is everything in between. So we have, Genesis, uh, sorry, we have Ephesians 1 that talks about things from a heavenly perspective. We have Ephesians 6, again, towards the end talking about things from a heavenly perspective in terms of what's going on in that spiritual realm and how it then plays out in all the stuff that happens in between in terms of living out the Christian walk. So here we are. We're uh, at this space now where we're talking about that final piece of the armor, talking about the sword of the Spirit. So if you have your Bibles with you, I'd like for you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6, Ephesians chapter 6, I'm going to be reading verses 10 to 17. Here's what it says. Finally, be strong in the Lord and and His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore... Put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes with the gospel of peace. In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you so much for our time together. I thank you that you have given us this armor and that when we apply this armor daily, living it out, every ounce of our being committed to it. Lord God, we know that we have everything we need to be able to stand firm in our faith as we tackle this whole notion of spiritual warfare and so Lord God may we remember that the war is spiritual the battleground isn't always spiritual it's often highly relational and so Jesus would we be a people who recognize that there is a spiritual dimension and a physical dimension to this war this thing that we call spiritual warfare and that you've given us everything we need to be able to stand firm in the face of it we thank you would our eyes be open, would our ears be open, would our hearts be open to what you have to tell us today regarding your word. In your name I pray. Amen. So the it's safe to say that the bulk of the armor that we've been talking about has for us a defensive posture. The uh, The breastplate, the helmet, the shield are meant to protect the protect us from the enemy's attacks and all the assaults that we get from him. And so I want to look at a Piece of armor today, we're talking about the sword of the Spirit that is both defensive and offensive in nature. And I think this is really important to us because, again, we are called an army. We are soldiers for the Jesus, right? Like there's this language of uh, being God's military arm, it is one of the imagery pieces that we have regarding the church. The sword of the Spirit, the word of God, is defensive. And offensive. Now it's important for us again uh, to look at the sword that we are being compared to. So uh, all of this armor is being referenced or is referencing Roman legionnaire armor. And so uh, it, just like that, we have the sword that's being compared in the same way. Now the Lord the Legionnaire's sword. Is a double-edged blade. Its length is anywhere from 12 to 20 inches, which means it's not a long sword. And because it's not a long sword, it's actually intended for close combat. You hear that? It's intended for close combat. And this thing is called a gladius. And the gladius was not the only uh, Roman soldier's weapon, but it was the weapon of choice. And so using it effectively was a matter of life and death. You hear that? Using it effectively was a matter of life and death. Using the word effectively gives us life or can bring death, respectively. And so the word of God is a sword. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is alive and active, it's not passive. Sharper than any double edged sword, it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts. And attitudes of the heart. It is a sword, double edged, sharp, and it does a lot of things. Now, I do think it's important that we reference back to the belt of truth. So, the belt of truth is the idea that we're learning the truths in Scripture. Uh, But the belt of truth, you could say, was a passive piece of armor, right? Like it was protective. It held the breastplate in, uh, so it was protective in that sense, but it didn't actually do much on its own. Its purpose was somewhat passive in that it just held something in place. And so you could say that learning the truths um, and, and, and understanding them is where this belt of truth kicks in. And so these are important. These are internalized. We have them with us. They hold a tremendous and important value. But that value gets most ultimately expressed when we understand that it also holds the sheath that holds the sword. And so holding that sword close to it tells you that there's something connected with these things. One is learning the truths. The other one I would suggest to you is applying the truths. And remember that the Word of God is alive and active. Belts are not active, but swords are. And so the sword of the Spirit is active. And with that clarification in mind, I think we can see how a word of the Lord compares wonderfully with a sword. You know, for whether used defensively or offensively, whether using a single passage or, or like a single verse or an entire passage of Scripture, when these things are well understood and they're rightly applied they're extremely powerful weapon in spiritual warfare. And so let's talk about it from the perspective of it being a defensive weapon. A relevant scripture can challenge and deflect sharp temptation or even block some of the temptation that can come our way from the, the thrust of false teaching. And we have several examples of the, in the Bible um, that talk about this. But one of my favorite examples, one of I think the best examples we have of this The sword of the Spirit, the word of God being used in a defensive posture is actually from Jesus. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. This is uh, after Jesus is baptized, he's taken into the wilderness, and in this wilderness, the devil, Satan, is tempting him, is what it says. But I want you to take note of what he's using to tempt him. Matthew 4, 1 to 11. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, which gives the indication that he was somewhat physically weak at this point and probably um, an easier target for that temptation. Remember that when you're physically weak, when you're exhausted, when you're tired, when you run yourself ragged, when you're not sleeping, all these kinds of things, uh, you do become more spiritually susceptible to attack and temptation. So after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter, talking about Satan, came to him and said, listen, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered him. It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. And he says, if you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down for it is written. See, listen, the devil is saying for it is written. He will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. And then Jesus answers him. It is also written. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all of the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All of this I will give to you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then the devil left him, and the angels came to attend him. Now, I want you to take note of something here, that every time Satan tempted Jesus to satisfy his fleshly desires, whether it be pride, whether it be ego, whether it be the desires of the flesh in terms of needing to eat, Jesus countered that enticement towards falsehood with it is written. It is written. so he references back the word of God, the sword of the spirit, Jesus brought to the battle a specific passage of scripture that dealt with the specific nature of the temptation every time. And I think it's also important to note that the evil one also used the Scripture in order to tempt Jesus. And so it's like this idea of this like 95% truth, 5% lie. That's what the devil is doing here. It's Deception works best when it is smothered and marinating in some measure of truth, even though it is a lie underneath. And so when temptation comes our way, whether it be temptation to lose our temper, to be greedy, to become self-righteous and arrogant, whether it's a temptation to be selfish and wallow in self-pity, maybe. A temptation to choose entertainment over worship, right? Like, like, oh, I don't want to listen to that preacher because he bores me, or I don't like that worship team because they don't sound as good as that worship team. This is That's entertainment language. That's not worship. A temptation to gossip, to cheat, to complain, to get high or get drunk. A temptation to be envious or jealous. A temptation to... Speak a lie or whatever else that temptation may be. We need to be able to respond to that temptation with the word of God, with a scripture that speaks to the issue that we can then meditate on. And if we're thinking and speaking out the scripture, then Satan and the temptation no longer will be able to have a foothold with us. That's how it works. It's the idea of of the only way to combat a lie is to confront it with truth every single time. Satan will say to you, man, you just can't do anything to please God. And the scriptures say that too, right? No one is good, not even one, right? Like nobody has this desire to please God. And so like he'll use that. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Yeah, absolutely. It's true. But God. You see, we we confront the, the temptation to rest in just that bad news without recognizing that that there's good news that comes into the mix that changes the bad news constantly. It is by grace that we have been saved. Like God's action on our part. So was I a sinner? Absolutely. Did I sin and fall short of God's glory? Absolutely. Apart from Jesus in my life, am I doomed to hell? Absolutely. But God. And we got to go to the scriptures to be able to confront some of these lies that the devil will even try to use the scripture to try and perpetuate within our lives. I would love you to note another point from this mas- this passage in Matthew. It's not just that the devil c- quoted scripture in his attacks on Jesus. It's that the devil used a portion of the scripture to encourage and provide a justification? For Jesus to do what the devil wanted him to do you see he also pulled it is written right he used the scripture I think it's important to note that he knows those scriptures exceedingly well now better than you and me and he has and he will use the scripture to entice us to sin against God and he loves to a scripture Right, like I want you to meditate on this, like First John, right? It talks about the idea of what it means to be people who love God, right? And, and he actually, John, the, the disciple whom Jesus loved, he walked with Jesus, witnessed Jesus' crucifixion on the cross, and he was told by Jesus, look at my mom, she's now your mom. Mom, look at this guy, he's now your son. So like this, this crazy, amazing relationship that's taking place here. And so this guy, John, says, look, you claim you love God, but you hate your brother, you don't love God. But the devil will come along and say, well, it's okay for you to not like this person. It's okay for you to hate this person, to despise this person, to want ill for this person. Because look what they did to you. But John, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes that, look, you can't love God and hate your brother. That doesn't work. So the devil will try to justify our stuff. And Scripture doesn't allow for it. He loves to twist Scripture, take it out of context, to get us to believe an idea or a teaching that's contrary to the true will of God. And so Satan will use good things to lead you to false things. I can't stress that enough. He will use good things to lead you to false things. And I think it's important that we remind ourselves, that 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 13 to 14 warns us that Satan's workers, so it's not just him himself, but his workers and and those who do his bidding, even though they don't even necessarily always recognize that they're doing his bidding, they disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Verse 13, for such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. You know what they're talking about here? They're talking about false teachers, false leaders within the body of believers who claim to love Jesus. They claim to be truth-tellers. They claim that things are in the Word of God, but they're masquerading to lead us to falsehood. And it happens over and over again. As a matter of fact, we know that in the writing of the New Testament, in the letters, it is stated that there are false teachers that are among them and will be thereafter. It is stated that these false teachers come from within, not from outside. The only way you're going to be able to defend yourself from the lies, man, everybody, the only way you're going to be able to defend yourself from the lies is with truth. Know the truth. And the only way you're going to protect yourself from false doctrine is sound doctrine. That's it. Anything that changes salvation, anything that changes the deity of Jesus, anything that changes the Godhead, Anything that happens with that stuff, anything that changes the value of Scripture, anything that changes the value of the church, the bride of Christ, chosen by Jesus to be His instrument to an unbelieving world, anything that changes the perspective on that needs to be confronted with truth. So it's a defensive weapon, but it is also an offensive weapon, not to be offensive for the sake of being offensive, in terms of how we communicate. But it's an offensive weapon because, like a sword, it cuts, it's used to inflict real damage on the work of the kingdom of Satan. There are three ways that we can use the word of God to assault Satan's kingdom. Three ways. As a suggestion. There's, there are more, but I'm just going to suggest three. The first one will be this: expose darkness. Expose darkness. Now, this is a little counterculture to us. Uh, And the reason behind that is that because more often than not, people do not appreciate conflict. And whenever you expose darkness, you're immediately entering into into conflict, but not conflict for conflict's sake. You're entering into conflict in order to be able to expose the lies, the darkness, to the light of the truth of God's word, so that lives are changed, both inside and outside the church. Ephesians 5.11 We are told, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. There are people all around us who do or condone evil things. All around us. All the time. They don't know that God speaks against it. And His scriptures is often the case. And So they'll joke about it, right? They'll make a... Uh, try to turn it into a funny story to try and get us to affirm it in some way we're commanded to bring understanding to them to expose evil for what it is Ephesians 5 13 states that the dark and evil deeds must be exposed to the light okay so then what is the light If the evil dark deeds, and by the way, it tells us in that same passage in Ephesians that these are the things that we used to participate in. These are the things that we used to do, that we no longer do these things. So we avoid these things. We expose the things to the light, but we don't participate in these things anymore. But we're to expose it to the light. So what is the light? Psalm 119, 105 and verse 130. Your word is a lamp for my feet, a light on my path. Verse 130, the unfolding of your words gives light and it gives understanding to the simple. God's word is the light. That's what it's referring to here. His precepts, his declarations, his commands. And using the sword of the Spirit, the word of God, it is our obligation to like, inform each other as brothers and sisters in faith of the difference between darkness and light. That's it. Like this is what we do with each other. We don't reject each other. We move towards each other. When we disagree, we move towards each other. We we expose each other to the truth in God's word and then we move within that truth. And we're all changed in that process. It's our obligation to inform each other of the difference between darkness and light. And if evil is playing out in front of us, we are not to be silent. Or not to be silent. Now, this is talking about the evil that comes along um, that's impacting living out the Christian walk in terms of, uh, you know, people doing the things that Jesus and the apostles clearly speak against. Number two, if the first thing is that we expose it, then number two, then we refute worldly philosophies and false religions. Many people participate in wrong thinking, in wrong philosophies, in wrong religions. And I think it's important for us to be able to be equipped to be able to speak into these things. Ephesians 4 verse 18 tells us that, So I tell you this, and and insist upon it in the Lord. That you must no longer live as Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. We need to educate people. We need to explain uh, who God is. We need to explain why man is the way it is. Why the condition of the world is the way it is. Why Jesus needed to enter into that world why Jesus needed to be resurrected, why the Holy Spirit then dwells within us, why all of this stuff is coming to a conclusion at some point that Jesus is going to come and judge all things. We need to educate people on these things. Acts 17, we have an account of the Apostle Paul going to Athens. And he deals with three different groupings of people in doing so. And with each grouping of people, he educates them differently. In verse 17, he goes out and he teaches the Jews about how their Messiah or Christ has come. And so to the Jews, he goes to them and he says, listen, Messiah has come. Jesus, whom you crucified, the way Peter says it in Acts chapter 2, he's the Messiah. So this is what he does to, to the chosen people of God. In verse 18, he talks to these philosophers called the Epicureans and the Stoics, and he challenges their beliefs by preaching Jesus' resurrection because they didn't believe in a resurrection. And so he preaches the resurrection to them, educates them. In verses 22 to 31, he talks to these heathen idol worshipers and philosophers about the true nature of the one God, right? Because he comes by and he says, like, he sees the statue to the unknown God, and he essentially says, hey, I know this unknown God that you speak of, that you, that you have here, and I've got definitions of what this means for you. And so he talks about the true nature of his God, about creation, about the origin of mankind. He talks about Jesus, about the resurrection, and about the coming day of judgment. Like he just like these guys are completely ignorant of all things Jesus. Paul comes in and he says, because you're completely ignorant of all things Jesus, I'm going to tell you the overarching story. He educates. Beyond the worldly philosophies and false religions, we need to correct those within the body of believers, within the bride of Christ, who've been entrapped by false doctrine. We absolutely need to. As we read the epistles of the apostles, they are frequently refuting false teachings that have crept into the church. Time and time again. I mean, this is like in the earliest of days. There's these false teachings that are coming into the church. It's like we gravitate towards falsehood. And I think that's a condition that we have that we call the sin nature. But Paul warned that in 2 Timothy 3.13, he says, while evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Like he's talking about these people that are inside the church. And they're deceiving people inside the church. And they're coming from within. They're being deceived themselves and then passing that deception on to others. And I want to suggest to you that, like we have seen that from the early church to today, the fulfillment of Paul's words. There are so many who believe themselves to be believers in our world around us. Like there's a group of people called the Baha'i. And these group of people called the Baha'i, they believe that God has these different prophets for different ages, and that Jesus was the like supreme prophet for his age, but there was another prophet who came after Jesus. So do they have a belief in Jesus? Yeah, but that Jesus' work was insufficient. It wasn't complete, and so this other prophet needed to come. That's a false teaching, and it was implemented by people who were uh, presumably impacted by the gospel at some point, understanding of Jesus. You have uh, Muslims... Who have a belief about Jesus that that is an inaccurate belief about who he is? Like it's all over the place. We have Jehovah's Witnesses. We have Mormons, and all these people claim to love Jesus, but it's a wrong understanding of who he is. We have people who deny the Trinity. We have people, like we have people who add things to salvation. There are things that come time and time again. We have people who say you can go out and do whatever you want, and you just come and ask for forgiveness, and all is good. And Paul speaks specifically against that. We need to unsheathe the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, to help them know the truth. 2 Timothy 2, 24-26. And the Lord's servant, listen, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed, not ridiculed. Gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. And so, we got to unsheathe that word of truth and we got to instruct people. We got to educate people. We got to educate the ones who should know. We need to educate the ones who who have no idea. We, like, it's just constantly we have to be able to instruct people in the sword of the Spirit, in the Word of God. Thirdly, we need to preach the gospel of salvation. The greatest way that we can damage the kingdom of Satan is to turn people away from Satan and towards Jesus through the gospel. So if you return to the heart of the matter, the only way we can defend ourselves from temptation and heresies, the only way we can go on the offensive and expose evil, the the only way that we can refute world's philosophies and, and false religious practices and to rescue believers in Jesus from false doctrine is to proclaim the wonderful words of life. As if we know the Scriptures. If we know How to use the sword to become master swordsman you want to be a master swordsman to use the word of god the way that jesus wants us to i got three suggestions that we can all practice how about this let's start simple read and study the bible read and study the bible We are commanded in Colossians 3.16, Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs of the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. In Psalm 119, verse 15, I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. Like I meditate on your precepts. I want to know what your commands are. I want to know what your instructions are. And I consider your ways, meaning I want to become just like you. Verse 24 of Psalm 119 Your statutes are my delight. They are my counselors. You have to know the Word of God. What does it mean? Is a question that we need to be asking ourselves. What does it mean? What did it mean in the day that it was written? And what should it then mean to me? And I don't start with what it means to me. I don't care what it means to you. What I care about is what it means. And then once we understand what it means to the original author who wrote it, what it means to the people who heard it, we then apply that to us. That's study. We need to answer the question, how can I apply the truth found in this passage to my life? And based on the passage, how should my thinking, how should my speech, how should my focus, how should my attitudes, my actions change? And what can I do tomorrow to reflect that change, to make it real? I need to read, and I need to study God's word. The second one would be this, memorize the scriptures, memorize them. When we read the scriptures, we do so with the purpose of retaining them. We retain what we read. Psalm 119, verse 16, I delight in your decrees. Listen, I will not neglect your word. I'm going to remember your word. I'm not going to neglect it. I'm going to hang on to it. I'm going to have it here and here and allow it to govern and move me in the direction towards Jesus. And by the way, just in case you're wondering, you're you're gonna be pretty attractive within the Christian community in terms of people wanting to become more like Jesus, right? Like the, the idea of being attractive within the Christian community. I'm not talking about attractive to the opposite sex or anything else like that. I'm talking about the idea that we become so like Jesus that other people wanna be near us because they want to be near people who are like Jesus. When we memorize the scriptures and we take them internally, when we read and study the scriptures so that we're living them out daily. That's this next part is that we live it out. We don't just keep the sword in its sheath. We don't walk around with it like it's an ornament. It's not a decoration that we just keep on a shelf and allow to collect dust and dust it off once in a while. Philippians chapter 2, verse 14 16 say, do everything without grumbling so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Listen to this. Then then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold, listen, firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run nor labor in vain. We need to share in the blessing of God of the blessing of God's word with others. You God has shown you a new truth, share it. Share it with somebody. He's like, you would be something simple. Hey, man, I was just reading this, never saw it before. What do you think of this? Has God revealed to you a wonderful promise that you've read in the Word? Share it. Has God convicted you of things that were not maybe necessarily straight in your life? Or you confess that with somebody else? Do you share God's wisdom with other people? And I'll tell you, you're going to be surprised at how blessed those people will feel and how much you build that relationship when you do that by sharing God's word with others. Listen to this, Psalm chapter 19, verse 7 and 8. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing to the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making the wise simple. The presets of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. Guys, the sword of the Spirit is this offensive and defensive weapon that is intended to be used. If it just stays in the sheath, it doesn't get used. And if it doesn't get used, guys, we, we go astray. We go astray. And we buy into lies because we don't know the truth. My hope and prayer is that we be a people who in this concept of spiritual warfare, we're gonna take on every piece of that armor. We are gonna wear it. We're gonna make sure that every day we are walking out into our daily lives with it on. We are going to make sure that every single piece of it is prepared and ready and secure on us. So when the day of evil comes, and by the way, it will, and it does, we will be able to stand firm. My hope and prayer, as yes, for you and for me, is that we're a people who through the armor of God and through the grace of God are able to stand firm the day of evil and when the day of evil comes. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you, Lord, that it is through your word that we learn more about you. We learn more about who we are. We learn more about our world. And Lord Jesus, I pray that you will help us to be a people who fall more in love with the things that you're in love with. And Lord, that we would learn about what those things are through your word. Lord, that we would become more like you by studying your word and allowing your word to permeate through our lives so that we become more like the likeness of your son. In your holy and precious name I pray, amen.